A quick warning before we start. This episode includes descriptions of violence and discussion of suicide. Last week on Motive. Society looks at us like, you know, we deserved it. You know, he in jail for something. And it's only in extreme and severe cases that something is brought to attention when they kill someone. I was told that he was beaten severely and they sent pictures of uh, him laying in the hospital bed, his feet chained to the bed. He was my brother and didn't deserve that treatment. And none of us do. I was told that, you know, hey, this prison is in this small town area. Everybody knows everybody. You know, that it's kind of a family thing. And it's hard really for anybody to go against that. Larry Irvin was allegedly beaten by guards. And I wrote letters with men who say they saw him in the aftermath of the beating. Almost none of them stayed at Western Correctional Center. Instead, they were transferred to prisons all over the state. One man I spoke to ended up incarcerated at Pontiac Correctional Center. You leave West. At least West didn't look like a prison. Pontiac, it looked like you just, it's like it's over with. That's, that's how I could describe it. Like, you pull up to Pontiac, you like, what I did? Like, ah, whatever I did, I'm sorry. Some staff will tell you that Pontiac is where they imprison the worst of the worst. And people in prison will tell you it's where the worst of the worst guards end up, too. It's a maximum security prison, and it's the oldest in the state. Found it in 1871, and it shows. It looks like a giant haunted fortress. Tall red brick walls and towers. People say it gets too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter, full of rodents and bugs. To be blunt, it's in bad shape. The prison is set right in the middle of an otherwise cozy-looking neighborhood of Pontiac, Illinois. People can sit on their porches and watch the staff shift changes. In the shadow of the prison is a cute little neighborhood playground, big yellow slide. Sitting on the swings, I can peer into one of the guard towers. I guess what I'm trying to show with all this is that Pontiac Correctional Center, like many prisons in small towns, is a big part of the community, woven right into its tight-knit fabric. This week, we go inside to see what happens when two women, women who are not from the community, women labeled outsiders, what happens when they get jobs at one of the toughest prisons in the state. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Shannon Heffernan, and this is Motive. Episode 2, Us and Them. Maria Bates never thought about working in a prison. But when she was looking online for a job as a counselor, she saw a posting at Pontiac Correctional Center. I was like, wow, I didn't even know they had these type of jobs there. So I applied. They called me, came in for the interview, loved me. I was kind of hired on the spot. So many people in prison have mental illness. And she knew some of them had probably never seen a therapist a day in their life. She was a licensed professional counselor. She thought the job was perfect for her. 
I knew it would be a struggle as I felt with the inmates, you know, but I'm a believer of God. So I'm like, hey, God is sending me here. I'm going to help these guys and I'm going to really make, you know, a change in somebody's life. So in your imagination, what would it be like? Meeting with the inmates, you know, hearing their past, you know, giving them proper coping skills, trying to keep them from coming back into the system. I really thought, hey, the state is doing a great thing. They want to help these offenders. This was early 2018. And part of the reason Bates was feeling hopeful was because the state was doing a massive overhaul of mental health in prisons. A couple of years before, the state agreed to a big legal settlement and a lawsuit that basically said mental health treatment in Illinois prisons was so bad, it violated the U.S. Constitution. The Department of Corrections promised in federal court to make things better in a bunch of ways, including hiring more mental health professionals like Bates. Do you remember your first day? Do you remember getting up and getting ready what that day was like? I do. I was so excited because one, it was paying me $10,000 more than what I made in my last job. So that was a great thing. So I get up. It was like an hour drive from my house. So I drove there, um, came in. Of course, I got searched, you know, went through all of them. I'm like, okay, this is different. I'm not used to having to do this. Everyone was so nice, so nice, so pleasant. I was kind of nervous, but then I was excited as well. Even though everyone was nice, Bates couldn't help but notice that she stuck out on the mental health staff. I was the only African-American in there, and which concerned me because the majority of the population is African-American. So I'm like, oh, okay then. And I'll never forget this young lady. She said, no one can last here longer than three months. She, she literally said that. She's no like, she said, no one can. Since plenty of staff have lasted longer than that, Bates assumed she meant black people couldn't last that long. It was awkward, but she decided to just leave it alone. But then she was paired with this white coworker, Todd Nelson, one of the seasoned mental health workers, to shadow him while he made his rounds, talking to patients, checking in on how they were doing. And I noticed how he spoke to the inmates. He would make derogatory comments, you know, calling the guys assholes, you shit turds, and um, I'll fuck you up, like things of that nature. Like, And he's talking to guys who are on suicide watch. Wait. The mental health worker saying this? Yeah, yeah, like he would kind of laugh it off. And the inmates would laugh it off. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe this is their relationship. But after the third day of going out with him, I was like, hey, I don't feel comfortable with you saying those type of things. And he's like, oh, you know, don't worry about that. These fuckers know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And so I was telling him, I'm like, but I feel offended, you know, by this. This coworker, Todd Nelson, had been around a long time. And everyone there seemed to know each other. Pontiac is a small town. This nurse dating that guard, so-and-so being so-and-so's mom. Bates was a new kid on the block, and she didn't need to piss Nelson or his friends off by saying something to higher-ups. So she kept her head down, built relationships with her patients. Still, she was relieved when a new mental health worker joined the staff, Jamia Stokes. Mia is what I call her. Um, she's a very wise woman. And with her being African-American, I saw her with her dreadlocks. I said, oh, you're African-American, African-American. So you're really not going to stand for this. Jamia Stokes also felt relieved to see Bates on staff. Oh, well, I thought, oh, this is going to be really good because I know that she and I can connect in ways that maybe my other counterparts probably couldn't connect when you first met her, what was your impression of her? Super funny. I mean, she's funny even when she doesn't know she's funny. As a matter of fact, when I started, she had taken off a few days. But when she came back, 
everybody was so excited to see her. It seemed like she had her infectiousness kind of like was all over the room. Stokes was a licensed professional counselor, worked in a jail before, but never a prison. Just like Bates, Stokes was passionate about working on recidivism, keeping guys from going back behind bars. But they had pretty different dispositions. Bates is expressive and energetic. Stokes a little more steady. But they liked that about each other. It was a good balance. Stokes loved how, even with the strict dress code, Bates found a way to show her personality with a collection of cute sneakers. Bates loved how Stokes immediately felt like a trusted advisor, a good listener who always knew the right thing to do. They started having lunch together, and they realized they were both from the same area, closer to Chicago. It was a long drive from the prison, over an hour, so they carpooled. When Bates drove, they listened to rap. In Stokes' car, it was news or gospel music. I don't speed, period. And and so Bates, she likes to drive fast. Like, she was like, we got to get through this traffic. Like, <laughs> you're going so slow. And so she would get so annoyed with when it would be my time to drive because we were going to get there, you know, real safe and calm versus she's going to go full throttle. So it's pretty much the same. Our driving is the same way as we kind of dealt with <laughs> situations. And by situations... She mainly means cringy or even offensive things that guards or mental health workers said to them. I just noticed they would say things like, um, oh, yeah, the hood and their homeboys and, you know, just terms like that. And I'm like, hey, you know, why are you guys you know, saying that? And so when I would advocate for them, they would say, oh, well, that must be your brother. That must be your friend. No, I don't know these guys. Sometimes guards would talk about how they thought people were faking depression or schizophrenia or straight up make fun of them for the ways they'd harm themselves. Just like her driving, Bates would go full throttle when people said those things, call it out and tell them to knock it off. Stokes instead was a bit more subtle. She offered to do a training about unconscious racism and implicit bias. They were each trying in their own way to make the place a little better for themselves, but also their patients. The Department of Corrections did not answer a long list of questions we sent about Bates and Stokes allegations. But in a brief written statement, a spokesperson said that the department does not ignore a person's mental health diagnosis and accusations that someone did would be addressed swiftly and could even result in termination. Bates and Stokes said one day when they were driving in, they got caught by a train and they saw Todd Nelson, the mental health worker that Bates had shadowed early on, also driving into work. We saw him on his motorcycle, and we spoke to him like, hey, Todd. And we were waiting at the train, because if, if you get caught by this train, everybody's stuck at this train. When they all arrived at the prison, Bates says she gave Nelson a bit of a ribbing. Like, hey, you tried to act like that you deceived me and Stokes pull up on the side of you this morning. And he was like, shit, I, um, I started searching for my gun when you guys pulled up on the side of me. I didn't know what you was going to do, like rob me or something. And he said, oh, shit, I forgot my gun. And I was like, wow, Todd, that's insult. I was like, why? Because we're black? He was like, um, no, I'm not saying that, but, and kind of, you know, just kind of shrugged it off. They decided to complain about him to their bosses. We reported it immediately, and nothing happened to him. I don't have any documentation of this report, but I reached out to Todd Nelson about a number of allegations, including that he'd made racist statements. He referred all questions to prison administrators who, so far, have not directly answered any questions about Nelson.
Gates and Stokes were struck by how little their supervisors had reacted to the Nelson incident. They started to notice signs it was maybe even worse than they thought for their patients, too. Not just talk. They were running group therapy sessions, but also going to people's cells, checking on them. They said she saw a nurse skipping giving someone meds. Sometimes their patients told them that they weren't allowed to shower or that staff had purposely destroyed their property. One time Stokes said she visited a man's cell and it was covered in feces. He was a really clean guy, almost obsessive about it. He told her guards had moved into a dirty cell filled with someone else's filth as punishment. He loved to clean. And so they knew that putting him in a cell with someone else's feces would really just get him really riled up and upset. It sounds gross, but you could even see, like, he would point out, like, there was, like, chunks of, like, feces that was on the floor. And I looked and I was like, oh, that is gross. All of this obviously worried Basin Stokes. So in staff meetings, they started raising concerns about what some of the other employees were doing. But they say they were shut down, told they were over-identifying with the men in prison. That was a word other mental health staff seemed to love, over-identifying, which Bates and Stokes took to mean, they're black, you're black, you can't keep the distance that you need to. Hearing that from other staff was discouraging. If advocating for their patients, trying to create conditions where therapy could work, was over-identifying, then what were they there to do? This feeling Bates and Stokes were getting, that the conditions were not at all conducive to mental health treatment, it wasn't just them that were saying that. Remember how the state had promised in federal court to improve mental health care? Well, as part of that settlement agreement, the court appointed an independent monitor, someone who would go into the prison and see if the state was living up to its promise. His reports to the court from around this time are pretty bleak. Staffing was short. There was a huge backlog. More than 200 people were waiting for their mental health evaluations. He said the level of care in Illinois prisons was so poor, it was causing all kinds of problems. Suicidal behavior, self-injuries, staff assaults. The monitor wrote, quote, This is an exceptionally dangerous situation, which puts staff and offenders at life-threatening risk. I thought that I was going to be actually being able to provide like therapy and and actually like work with people when they're in crisis and things like that. But that's not what you're doing. You're actually literally just going in and you actually don't have time to do anything but just ask these standard questions. Are you suicidal? Do you feel like hurting yourself? Can you guarantee your safety? That's pretty much it. When I talk to people who are locked up at this time, they don't have much nice to say about the therapy. One said it was almost entirely in group settings. Another said that the mental health staff would just throw the markers and tell them to draw, like they were five years old. But despite the difficult circumstances, Bates and Stokes patients said they did make a difference. Like Carrie Pettigrew, someone who was in Stokes' group. And Stokes was fucking awesome. Carrie Pettigrew was at a county jail when we talked, so the phone line's a little fuzzy. Before he met Stokes, he'd been frustrated with the mental health groups. They'll tell you, uh, do diaphragmic breathing or walking meditation where you count your steps inside of your own. And they'll leave it at that, like it's, it's that easy, you know, to simply grab a hold of a coping skill. And I brought to Miss Stokes' attention, I'm like, well, what about someone like me who starts to, you know, experience rapid thoughts where my mind gets to moving so fast? And... 
when I told her that she asked me a question, she was like, well, when you get like that, generally what happens? I said, well, I get to the point where I start to have suicidal thoughts and thoughts of harming somebody else, and I asked for a crisis team. And she told me that's a form of a coping skill, asking for help when you need it. Crisis teams are mental health staff who are supposed to respond quickly in an emergency when someone says they want to hurt themselves or others. Pettigrew lied tells Stokes told him that asking for a crisis team was a good strategy. It felt like something he could actually do. Like there was a time when he stopped getting letters from his mom, which sent him into an absolute spiral. He'd been buying pills off other men on the wing. Had you ever attempted suicide before? Yes, ma'am. And had you tried while you were in there before? Yeah, absolutely. Pettigrew said he told a guard that he was feeling suicidal and requested a crisis team. The guard said he would go get one right after he handed out the meal trays. But then, when everyone had eaten and the guard came back to pick up the trays, Pettigrew said he still hadn't gotten the crisis team. I said, you know what, man, fuck that. And I stepped to the back of my room. And I started taking the pills. And now it's, it's shit that got serious now. He's, hey, stop doing what you're doing. Hey, what are you doing? Pettigrew said the guard ran off the wing, then came back with another guard who had handcuffs and a canister of OC spray, pepper spray. And he's screaming and hollering at me, telling me to cuff the fuck up now. And I told him, dude, I don't feel safe cuffing up for you. I'm not cuffing up until mental health comes. When I told him that, he pulled the mace can out and started shaking it. I'm like, what you got that for? And he sprayed me. <laughs> nothing to talk about. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck? You just sprayed me. That's what the fuck you sprayed me for? If you don't come up here and cuff up, I'm going to spray you again. This is this the shit right here. Why I didn't want to cuff up? Because look, at you trying to hurt me. Spray me again. What did it feel? What did the spray feel like? That shit burns instantly, instantaneously. You start coughing. It's not coming out of your nose. You have no control over that. Um, it completely, like, opens your, your fucking sinuses. Okay. It's horrible. He was, like, on his knees, up against the... His head was against the brick. Stokes said she didn't see the situation with Pettigrew unfold. But she did see Pettigrew right after. He was outside the building. He looked like he took a shower in CO spray. It was like he was covered, dripping. It was dripping off of his head. Staff reports tell a different version of events from Pettigrew's. They say they sprayed him before he took the pills to stop his suicide attempt. Those reports don't mention anything about Pettigrew asking for a crisis team. But the way Pettigrew tells it, he'd already taken the pills when they sprayed him. At that point, they weren't going to stop him from doing that. He said what they could have done was finally get mental health. In the end, he said he didn't really talk to anyone about how distressed he was, really get mental health help until Stokes visited him in healthcare days later. Bates and Stokes had other stories like Pettigrew's, times their patients reported assaults or abuse. This problem was documented by the court monitor, too, the guy hired by the courts as part of that lawsuit. His name is Pablo Stewart. He's a psychiatrist, but he also comes from a corrections background. In our conversations, Stewart often stuck up for guards, said their jobs were really hard. He's not someone who believes staff should never use force, including pepper spray. 
I'm not totally against OC spray. There may be some times where it's, where it's necessary to prevent further harm to people. And it's a way to control an out-of-control person. But when he started monitoring Pontiac, he noticed there were times when they'd use force, when what they really should have done was given someone mental health help. Like, they'd spray someone with pepper spray instead of calling in a crisis team. He said lots of incidents started with someone, often in mental health crisis and not getting enough treatment, doing something. Like throwing some feces out of their cell. He said it created this feeling that the men in prison and the guards were fighting each other. An us versus them mentality. And the guards aren't sophisticated mental health practitioners. So they see a guy who's acting out and throwing feces at him. They don't say, oh, it's because he has untreated schizophrenia. They'll say, it's just this just a prisoner who's throwing shit at me. Uh, and so that's sort of the basis of the us versus them mentality. Stewart wrote in his reports that there was an elaborate system of retaliation against people with mental illness for their behaviors, including withholding food or planting evidence in someone's cell. He wrote about showing up and seeing incarcerated people with severe injuries. The kind of thing, if it were in the outside world, he'd report it to police. I'd get stories. They'd tell me, says, oh, this guy here, he's in the cell next to me, and I heard the guards come in and work him over. And I said, okay, I hear a lot of stories, so I don't take them, you know, anything on face value. But after you start hearing 10 stories, and they name the same guard, or they point out the same supervising uh, officers, uh, then it starts to be a little more credible. And, and then I started looking at medical records and seeing where on a given date where a person says he was assaulted by a guard, and in fact, he had gone to uh, the medical unit and needed to be cleaned up for abrasions on his face or a tooth that was knocked out. From my training and experience, I had a pretty good idea what was going on. So Bates and Stokes are going into work and they are seeing and hearing the same kinds of things that the monitor is noticing. Injuries from alleged beatings, accusations staff destroyed someone's property. They say their bosses told them that if they see these things, report it. Fill out the right documentation. Let us know what's happening so we can fix it and make things better. But then when they actually did it, actually wrote the reports, the reaction was different. They said one of their supervisors called a meeting, gathered everyone together, the whole mental health team, and gave a really mixed message. Stokes said a supervisor said, you should keep reporting. That's your ethical obligation. But at the same time, you want to be really cautious about like how often and what you're saying because these are the same people that we're asking to protect us when we go into these cell houses. Basically, the message Bates and Stokes got from that meeting was sort of like what the monitor Pablo Stewart had observed. There was an us versus them dynamic, guards versus prisoners. And the supervisors were saying the guards are the ones keeping mental health staff safe. So we're on their team. Don't go messing that up. Bates and Stokes said the meeting was for the whole mental health team, but everyone knew who they were really talking to. Because Bates and Stokes said they were basically the only ones speaking up, the only ones who stepped over the line of us and them. What happened when they stepped over that line after the break?
Jamia Stokes said one day, not long after she had reported a guard, she arrived at the entrance to the prison, where everyone gets searched. She had a clear see-through bag, just like she was supposed to. She said staff usually just breeze through quickly, but this time, the guard stopped her. And she said, I want to see your bag. So I hold it up like this because that's what I normally do. So she said, no, I need to see it. Now, mind you, there's like four items in there. So you could actually, there was nothing that was obscuring the items or anything. She literally took each item out and turned it and inspected, took that item out, turned it and inspected. You know, and so again, I knew that they have this little system and they have this family system that they are very protective of one another. So if you do something to one, then you've done it to everyone. Stokes was pretty sure she was trying to make her late and send her a message about her report. Sometimes it wasn't just annoying, it was scary. Like how once she said she was on the wing and a guard delayed opening the doors for her to leave. It made her feel like she might be left open to an attack from the incarcerated men. In a report to her supervisor, she wrote she was concerned she was being placed in unsafe conditions as retaliation for writing a report. Bates and Stokes' patients, the men in prison, had noticed something was off, too. The inmates used to tell me that that the guards were talking about following me home. And so they started telling me, stop taking up for us, Miss Bates. Stop advocating for us. They're going to come after you. And I would tell them, I want them to come after me. Bates said when they went into prison, they were on an island, cut off from the world. No phones, no leaving for lunch. So Bates and Stokes said having each other there was essential. Their morning drives became strategy meetings about how they were just going to get through the day. Mia would always give me that pep talk, like, look, don't go in there. Don't let them get under your skin on today, Damari. You got to stay cool. You got to stay calm. So I'm going in ready, like, they're going to do something. I know that they're doing something. Because I just felt like it's something going to happen every day. One day, they were both in a mental health staff meeting. It was a routine check-in meeting. They all gathered around a big table. Bates and Stokes were across from each other at a diagonal. Even before the meeting started, Bates was in a terrible mood. I was dreading the meeting because it was always some BS. So I just, I don't even know how to be in my mindset. It probably was just like, I hate it here and I don't even want to um, be here. That day, Bates said they were discussing a man who was on suicide watch. From what I was hearing, I guess he just had a very bad stomach. He had told them he's followed a sport, but no one was believing him. Sporks are those plastic utensils that are half spoon and half fork. And even though he said he had swallowed one and looked in bad shape, Bates said he wasn't getting sent to the hospital. Bates remembers that people didn't seem to take it seriously. I think they just started saying negative things. Oh, he's lying, you know. It was nothing that was being addressed at all. So everybody was like saying, he he, he ain't swallowing no spork. He, you know, he's lying. He's just trying to go to medical and all of this. You know, they were just dismissing it. Like, I cannot believe this is the, their response versus going to get them to medical. Yeah, so I, I, I felt like I had to report this, like I have to escalate this to somebody higher because this inmate is a human who is possibly can die, and this is their response. I don't have any documentation of this particular incident. Health records are protected by privacy laws, and the Department of Corrections refused to comment. But I do have evidence that swallowing objects is sadly common. I found one case where a man at another Illinois prison died after he also swallowed a spork and staff failed to act. Stokes said the attitude when someone swallowed something was pretty much, quote, he'll shit it out. During the meeting, Bates said she actually got up, 
went to get an incident report and started writing everything up right in front of everyone. So she was very agitated. And so that's when she made the remark, like, y'all willing to lose y'all jobs. I'm not willing to lose my license. Y'all going to lose y'all license. You guys are licensed therapists and registered nurses here. How are you guys overlooking these red flags? You know, like it was just too overwhelming for me. And I just kind of lost it. Faith says she was so boiling mad that she didn't even want to look around at their faces. The next day, a staff psychologist wrote an incident report complaining about Bates' behavior. In the report, he wrote that he thought the comment about staff losing their licenses was, quote, very inappropriate and also threatening. The mental health worker who Bates had shattered when she started, Todd Nelson, he wrote a report, too. Just after that, Bates got a notice from her supervisors laying out concerns about her performance. It said, once again, she was over-identifying with prisoners. For example, it reported that Bates had once said she felt more comfortable, quote, in a cell with an offender than being out of the cell with a CO, which Bates doesn't deny. But it also said she'd encouraged her patients to go on a hunger strike. Another employee said they witnessed her talking to men on the wing about it. Bates denies she ever encouraged a hunger strike. As their therapist, I encourage them, don't throw feces on the offices, don't throw urine, don't spit at them, because this is not helping you guys. So you have to fight them another way. You guys are cutting yourself, smearing feces on yourself, trying to protect yourself in there. I'm like, hey, you're not animals. Don't do that. So I was off for two days. And when I came back, nine offenders were on hunger strike. So they, they said that I gave them unhealthy coping skills. I said, I never told them to go on hunger strike. They thought there they are. I never even thought of that. After the complaints were filed and the notice was sent, Bates was placed on leave and an investigation was opened. The investigation looked into all the accusations against Bates about a hunger strike and over-identifying. Bates and her supervisors invited her in for a meeting to respond, and she went through each accusation defending herself. After everything was done, I, you know, told them, you know, I did want to my job, you know, but it's overwhelming for me. And so they said, we'll be, you know, we'll be in contact with you. So you so just I never showed back up? Never or? showed back up. After a week of not hearing anything, I just went to the unemployment office. According to documents from the department, Bates was terminated for unsatisfactory performance. She'd been there five months, two months longer than she said her coworker had originally predicted she could last. How did you find out about that? Did she, she tell me. you? Did she, she tell me? What did it do to you when she left then, when she had to, was forced out? How did that affect you? I felt so alone. I really did. I, I really felt really alone because I felt really alone. Because I knew I was on the losing end. just made you feel bad because you knew you were doing the right thing. And for them to just minimize what they were doing to say, oh, we're over-identifying. And so, yeah, I just felt alone. After Bates left, Stokes said the treatment from other staff just got worse. She felt like she was the only one left reporting the abuses. And the other staff would rather she just not be there. She said she got a nickname, crude enough, I'm not going to repeat it here. The harassment got bad enough that she was actually afraid when she went into work. I started feeling fearful that since they feel like I'm the enemy, that at one point they're going to be able to talk an inmate into doing something to me. And I shared that with my husband and my husband was like, I don't feel, 
I don't feel comfortable with you going in there either because I've thought the same thing. Plus I would drive an hour and it's like an hour and 30 minute drive. And so it's desolate a lot, you know, like a lot of it's blank. And so he was thinking, you know, you don't know if somebody's going to follow you home one day, run you off the road, whatever. You don't know. We didn't find any evidence that there were any plans to attack Stokes or have her attacked by a prisoner. But she was feeling afraid. Stokes says the way she was acting towards the men in prison, her patience, was shifting. Yes, because of that fear, but also because she was getting used to it all. The abuse, the us versus them mentality. For example, there was one man who was really outspoken about bad conditions. Stokes said she never had problems with him, but she was aware that he'd been accused of exposing himself to other female staff, something he denies. After one of those alleged incidents, he told her guards beat him up. Yeah, I saw the bruising. What did you do when you noticed these injuries? I think he was telling me about what actually happened, and I told him that I would write it up. And I don't think I did. I don't think I did, though. I I don't know why I didn't write it up. I don't know whether I just... I was really almost just ready to just get out of there for real. And I just think I just probably, it's just a sea of, a sea of, of many. Did that, that moment of seeing him in such a state and then not writing it up, was that a turning point in any way for you? It probably was. I, it, it probably was. Like, like I said, it's just, Just not feeling like there's anything that I could do. And then, of course, there's, there's you know, because you do, you have this struggle with um, that they've done bad things to people, too. So things are happening bad to you. You know, it's maybe karma for you. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I just felt like help, like almost like just so conflicted because, and that's, I think that's really why I really wanted to get up out of there because either you were going to go along or you were just going to get mistreated, uh, picked on, bullied. I was just tired of that. When you read about prisons, There's a phrase you end up hearing a lot. It's almost a cliche. Prisons and jails are the largest mental health providers in the country. Maybe you've seen a headline like that. And I see why people say it. There are so many people with mental illness locked behind bars, and this drives home that point. But after talking with Bates and Stokes, I really don't know. It's like saying that, saying prisons are the largest mental health providers. It assumes that these prisons are actually providing mental health help, like it's a reasonable location for that. And from what Bates and Stokes saw, it's really hard to do treatment inside. Maybe not impossible, but certainly not ideal. The culture is bent so hard towards bad guys and good guys, us and them. Prisons can have this Midas touch, a way of turning everything into punishment, a way of changing the people who go inside them. So one day, after all this happened, Stokes was at work. I just decided, to said, today's the day. I'm, I'm not coming back here no more. That day, she walked around the prison and told her patients goodbye, including the man with the bruising she hadn't reported. We talked to him, but agreed not to name him. 
she was crying and she was walking past, you know. So because like I said, this was like one of our main advocates and she was like, I just can't take it no more. And she ended up quitting. What did it do to you when she quit? Um, it was kind of like, it was a blow, not just myself, to, but to everybody, because it's like when you lose an advocate or ally, it, it, it hurts the movement, but you also take it personally when it comes to people like her, someone who was genuine with their intentions to help, you know, who wasn't just there for a paycheck. After she said her goodbyes, Stokes said she went to her desk and wrote an email to her supervisor. It explained she couldn't continue working in those conditions. She hit send, walked out the gates, and didn't ever come back. I felt free, and I also felt kind of like I gave up on them, too. If I really, if I'm really honest about it, um... You know, I could leave, happy to be leaving. My lifestyle is such that I could leave. But if I think about it, I could hear the, um, you know, just the, the, the sound of the prison itself, you know, because it's, you know, you can oftentimes hear people on the yard. You can hear, you can hear gates clanking. You can hear all of that. And I, it kind of almost felt like out of a movie, almost like a movie that, happy but sad like you wonder what happened in the end like you know that the person is walking out and oh you're just so glad that they got out but then you're also wondering about the people who are behind since Bates and Stokes left Pontiac in 2018 Some conditions for people with mental illness in Illinois prisons have improved, at least according to the Monitor's report, the person hired by the courts to oversee how things are going. But reports from the court monitor still flag problems with too few mental health staff and poor access to crisis care. And people in prison with mental illness are still reporting physical abuse. A quick warning before we start. This episode includes graphic descriptions of self-harm. Most anybody who grew up in Livingston County has some connection to the prison. You can hear the, there's a big horn that sounds at the prison. You can hear that even out in the country. Depending on which way the wind's blowing and how clear of a day it is, you can hear things from even out where I lived. And so the prison was a very large, looming figure in Livingston County. There was a lot of kids I grew up with. Their parents or friends were um, prison guards. One of my very good friends, his dad was a prison guard, and so growing up, going over to his house, you know, you'd see his dad come home from work. He he would tell stories about what goes on in there, and, and as somebody who was growing up in a small farming community, you'd hear about some of these guys, and it would, uh, you know, make your eyes widen. And it uh, 
weirdly gave you a little sense of pride that, wow, we're, we're dealing with big things here in this little area. Seth Uphoff felt proud to be from Livingston County, home of Pontiac Correctional Center. And while a lot of kids grew up dreaming of being famous athletes or musicians, Uphoff had a different idea. I'm a little odd in that uh, at about the age of 12, I figured out that I wanted to be a prosecutor. And I, I know this sounds maybe a little cheesy, but really, when I think back on it, I think a lot of it uh, started with Law & Order. Law & Order, as in the TV show. Salacious court cases ripped from the headlines. Did Ms. Winslow invite you to her hotel? No. Did she even know you were in New York? Upoff grew up watching these fictional prosecutors in New York battle it out in court. But if your obstruction allows a massacre to happen, I will crucify you, Mr. Kralik. I will charge you with negligent homicide. By the time I'm done, you'll be finished. As prosecutors, uh, they were doing what I thought was right and, you know, trying to uphold justice and put the bad guys behind bars. Just like the so-called bad guys he'd heard about being locked up in the prison. It's like Upoff wanted to be the most nerdy version of a superhero. Paperwork instead of a cape. And when he got older, he got his dream. After he got his law degree and practiced for a few years, he moved back to Livingston County and ran for state's attorney, the local prosecutor. He won. Is it fair for me to say it's, it's not like you were somebody coming in who had a bone to pick with the prison being there? Oh, yeah. For no, you, for I, that to be, yeah. No bones at all. In fact, uh, uh, thought highly of it and still do. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Shannon Heffernan, and this is Motive. Season 4, Episode 4, No Justice in Politics. Seth Upoff came into office hoping to be the kind of prosecutor he saw on TV. Someone who would take dangerous people off the streets and put them behind bars. And when he came into office, his job was to prosecute the things you'd expect, like robberies. But one thing that was unusual about being a prosecutor in Pontiac is a bunch of the cases came from inside the prison. People who were already locked up. And did you realize when you took this job how much you were going to be uh, dealing with prison cases? I underestimated it. What I found was that the vast majority of cases were assaults on the correctional staff. But the types of assaults were not the physical assaults that most people would envision. A lot of these assault cases were really uh, bodily fluid cases. So, you know, these were guys who were spitting at the officers. They were throwing urine. They were throwing feces. As we've already mentioned in previous episodes... Throwing bodily fluids on a guard can be considered battery of a peace officer. It can add years to someone's sentence. Apoff noticed that a lot of the guys getting charged in prison had serious mental illness. Sometimes the court would have to call in a psychiatrist to evaluate if someone was even fit to stand trial. And Apoff said the guards, the victims in these cases, weren't always thrilled when he called them in to testify. Here they were getting called in as witnesses, sometimes on the day off, sometimes on vacation. And uh, sometimes it was just the wrong time of day, because if they're a night shift, we're calling them in at eight, nine o'clock in the morning for trial. They're supposed to be going home to go to bed. Right. It's like you're asking them to, it's their 4 a.m. in the morning. Right. And so I recall an officer coming in and it was somebody that I knew. 
I said, Hey, you know, what are you here for? And he goes, I'm here for some case. And I don't even know, I don't even know if I remember this. And then I grabbed the report. I said, it was this guy and this would happen. And he goes, Oh my gosh, that was like three years ago. And I said, yeah, yeah, it was. And he goes, in, in not so many words, he said, I've grown up a lot in three years. I would have handled that a lot differently now than I did then. This guy was, you know, I thought disrespecting me and he spit on me and I wasn't going to take that from him. And so I wrote this thing up. But man, nowadays I would have handled that very differently. I don't even know if if I would have known you guys were going to prosecute it. I would have contacted somebody and said, hey, look, wave this one off, you know. Uphoff estimates he had over 100 prison cases a year. And after a while, he starts thinking, Maybe these cases aren't worth pursuing, at least not so many of them. Some of the victims seem annoyed to come in, and a lot of the defendants already have long sentences. Apoff's a small-town state's attorney, can only bite off so much. Maybe this isn't where he should focus. So Apoff says he went to the warden of Pontiac Correctional Center. And we had a, a long discussion about that and came to an, an agreement where we said, look, um, only send us over the cases that you really want charged, that you really believe that you can't deal with in-house or that need to have the follow-through of the state's attorney's office, and we're happy to follow through on those. I reached out to the warden from that time. He declined to comment. But at least from Uphoff's perspective, the warden was on board with this proposal, and Uphoff thought everyone would love it. So I think it was good for them. I think it was good for us. In retrospect, I, I was a little naive, and really that was a political novice mistake. There's one man that became kind of a symbol for how these prosecutions were working. It's someone who was charged before Upoff came into office, but still ended up having a big impact while Upoff was state's attorney. His name is Anthony Gay. He's a short guy, compact, and Gay seems to know everyone who's passed through Pontiac. He even remembers when Major Susan Prentice, from the last episode, started working at Pontiac in the 90s. He said at first she wasn't that bad, Kind of chill, actually. Then she was like a term I like to use a lot. Uh, cool like cool white toothpaste. Cool like cool white toothpaste. He said he kind of watched her grow up inside the prison. Saw her change. At the same time, he says he was growing up inside the prison. Also changing. Because they say we're like plants. We're either growing or dying. Gay, you may be noticing, loves to have a pithy turn of phrase. Other people's quotes, but his own expressions, too. Like, when we're talking about something that was unfolding in court, he said, This case has enough twists and turns to send a pretzel maker into ecstasy. I don't think I've ever met somebody who uh, has as many quotes memorized as you. <laughs> I mean, I guess that, in fact, I got a book that I'm working on called Quotable Quotes and Nerdworthy Comments. Because they're inspirational, right? Gay is always working on something like this. He's already published a book of his reflections from prison called Rope of Hope. He struggled with mental illness from a young age. He's been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Eventually, he was charged with stealing a hat and a single dollar bill from a guy he'd gotten in a physical fight with. That got him on probation. But then he drove without a license and ended up with a seven-year sentence. He was 20 years old. He spent time in a few prisons around the state, When you're put in a cell like that, you start to psychologically bounce off the wall. So you start craving, like, human attention, social stimulation, and things of this sort. So you become 
aggravated over the smallest things. Like in one prison, staff once forgot to give him a pillowcase. He had so little to focus on that this just infuriated him, and he went off on guards. Another time he said he got in a fight with another incarcerated man, and that sent him to segregation, where he was stuck all day in a cell. He thinks segregation exacerbated his mental illness, affected how he behaved. You know, I have a saying where I say, when I talked about Pontiac, right, solitary confinement in Pontiac, and I said that this environment is so sick, it inspires you to become sick, hoping you can offset sick. The symptoms of his mental illness got worse, much worse. I don't want to be too gory here, but I do want to drive home how bad it got for Gay and Solitary and the self-harm he did. At one point in segregation, he stabbed his thigh with a spoon so deep that it had to be removed surgically. Another time, he cut off his testicle and hung it on the cell door. His arms are so full of scars from self-harm that they look like tree branches. And Gay says that same desperation that led to self-harm, that same need for some kind of stimulation, any kind of stimulation, is also what led him to act out against staff. He admits he threw liquids on staff, and he's sorry for that. Gay has said he knows it horrifies officers. But the thing is, in his mental state at that time, he wanted them to react. He wanted the cell extraction team to come and to drag him out. I used to do this at one point, fight the cell extraction team to feel alive, right? So when you're cutting yourself, you feel alive. When they beat you up, you feel alive. Um, when they spray you with mace and it's burning your skin, you come to realize, yeah, you're still human. You're, you're still alive, right? He ended up getting criminally charged for throwing what staff reported was a brown liquid at guards. Gay says it was coffee. He was charged with battery. He got five years added to his sentence. Gay basically says the prison put him in segregation, which made his mental illness worse. He acted out. Then they punished him for it by keeping him in prison and segregation even longer. Gay's close friend, Christopher Knox, spent a lot of time in segregation, too, Sometimes in SEG, they could yell underneath their doors and hear each other. Just a side note, when I interviewed Knox, we were outside. The cicadas in Illinois were really loud. And what what kinds of things would you talk about? Oh, we reminisce, and then we would talk about litigation. Litigation. Knox had been charged, too. So they'd be in these tiny cells behind big, heavy doors, shouting out the bottom about legal strategies for the cases they've been charged with, and also these civil lawsuits they started filing about prison conditions. Even in segregation, they had a legal right to access the law library. So with very little to do, they'd plow through legal texts. We most definitely had our moments where he says the law says one thing, I says it says another thing. And then when we go look it up or something like that, it says something totally different from what we both were saying. But, you know, but, but Anthony, he would still say he was right. Stubborn. Right. He's stubborn and very stubborn. Stubborn, but also very good. Oh, man. They might well just go on to get that man his license. In fact, there's one case that is legendary. Gay was charged for another alleged battery that occurred just after that first liquid case. This all, by the way still underneath Seth Opoff's predecessor, a 
prosecutor named Tom Brown, referred to in a Chicago Tribune article as Maximum Tom, because he had a reputation for always seeking harsh sentences. Now, Gay admits he acted out against staff, threw liquids on them, stuff like that. But this incident, the one that he was charged for, he said it was false, or at least off the mark. He admits he was teasing one guard about his girlfriend, a nurse on staff, saying that when he got out of prison, he wanted to be with her. Gay said the guard got so mad, he tried to strangle him through the bars, and Gay knocked the guard's hands away. The guard's story is different. He said Gay, unprovoked, reached out through the bars and hit him in the face. The case was sent to the prosecutor, local state's attorney Tom Brown, and Gay was charged with battery. They expect it to be a slam-dunk case, which all cases mostly are for them, right? After all, it's a correctional officer's word against the word of a man in prison. And this is a prison town with a prison town jury. In the court transcript, a bunch of potential jurors talk about knowing prison staff. One was a guard. One had a son-in-law who was an assistant warden. Most of those people got dismissed from jury duty. But still, one person ended up on the jury who said she knew four different guards had them as neighbors. You have to think about Pontiac Correctional Center is the second highest employer in Livingston County. So many people support the correctional officers. So for the most part, you didn't stand a chance. On top of that, Gay decided to represent himself. No lawyer. He didn't trust the local public defenders, assumed they had ties to the prison too. So he's there, lawyer and defendant, in handcuffs and leg shackles. The deck was really, really stacked against him. Reading through the trial transcripts, there's no doubt Anthony Gay's not your typical lawyer. Like when the judge asks lawyers if they have anything else before the jury comes in, Gay says, hell no. And he refers to the judge as man, as in, what do you want to ask this witness? Nothing, man. But still, it's clear. Gay had a strategy of how to win, knew the documentation in the case inside and out. That allowed him to poke holes in people's testimony. For example, there was an investigator from the prison that looked into this alleged assault. They had no intentions of calling her as a witness. So I called her as like what they call an adversary witness or a hostile witness and put her on the stand and basically impeached her. Gay pointed out how her earlier testimony before a grand jury that he had seriously injured the guard didn't match the medical records that showed there were no injuries. And then I showed her the medical report and compelled her to read that it was totally opposite to what she told the grand jury. Basically, Gay made this key person look unreliable. He noticed people in the courtroom watching it all unfold. I could hear them in the back saying, he's good, he's And the prosecutor could hear it, too. Other people told me Gay was sharp, too. In fact, Seth Uphoff, the state's attorney you heard from earlier, he said when he first took office, one of the judges told him, don't sleep on Anthony Gay. This trial, it was short. And after the testimony was done, the jury came back with a big fat, not guilty. Gay said he was amazed. He came back and shared the news with his friend, that guy in the cell near him, Knox. Just describe that moment. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. What's up, man? I did it. I did it. I'm a bad motherfucker. I did it. 
excuse my name, sorry, but there was his words. I did it. I said, what? Thomas Brown, I took him down. How, what did you say to Anthony when they said that? That's my boy. That's my boy. This is a man self-educated himself. You know, he learned the law. And you go in there and you beat a man who went to school for this for years. Says a lot. I get the feeling that this win, it was a big deal not just for Gay, but for the other men on his wing, too. He'd beaten Tom Brown, Maximum Tom, the person who prosecuted a lot of cases against people in prison. But this win, in many ways, was also when things got worse for Gay. Gay is convinced it set off something in Tom Brown. I think he felt embarrassed, right? I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner, right? Um, Locked up in Pontiac and... You know, people talk, they say gossip is America's snack food. So I think people were probably talking about it, or he was worried about his image of being beat by a prisoner. I reached out to Tom Brown several times to talk about this trial and about Anthony Gay, but he never got back to me. So I can't know how he felt about Gay or this case, and I don't know his motivations. But after Gay won, Brown piled on new charges. There was this period in 2000 and 2001 when Gay was in bad shape. Because I was really like, I was really delusional, gone, right? He'd been in segregation and was doing a lot of self-harm, but also harming staff, mostly throwing stuff at guards, though there were some charges of headbutting. Brown kept bringing charges one after another. A battery case for throwing liquid got him three years. Then another one got him eight. Gay lost case after case, adding 97 years to a sentence, de facto life. I decided I was going to fight, even if I would end up having to die in there, that I was going to fight against it because it was wrong. But as good of a jailhouse lawyer as he was, he needed help. After a long search, he found a lawyer, Scott Maine. This case just hit me on, on sort of a fundamental elemental level of like, this can't be... Uh, it was a no-brainer uh, to want to wanna help in any way that I could. Maine argued Gay's cases in appeals court, and he lost a bunch. It was one of his fellow lawyers who had the idea to take a closer look at sentencing rules instead. This is a little technical, but basically, when someone has multiple sentences, there are two ways it can work. The sentences can be served concurrently, meaning at the same time. Three five-year sentences is still just five years behind bars. That's how it works in most cases in Illinois. But there are exceptions where sentences can be served consecutively, meaning they stack on top of each other. So three five-year sentences is 15 years. For Gay, the sentences were stacked consecutively. And Gay's lawyer thought that was wrong. More than that, he thought the resulting sentence was outrageous. He thought he was coming home in 2005, and all of a sudden he's not coming home for 100 years. And what in the hell happened that got us to that point? And he saw an opportunity. By that point, Tom Brown had left office, and Seth Uphoff had taken his place. Maine heard he was handling prison cases a bit differently and thought they might have a chance with him. He decided to be a thorn in Uphoff's side about Gay's case. Our early strategy 
was uh, we are going to continue to say there's something wrong here and we're going to we're not going anywhere and we're going to keep talking about this and we're going to keep talking about this and keep talking about this. And so when I first got the letter from the attorney, Scott Maine, um, my first reaction was, well, Mr. Maine clearly doesn't understand the sentencing structures in Illinois. I was pretty dismissive of it. Even though Uphoff had started prosecuting fewer prison cases, he wasn't a crusader about prison or anything. He was still a law and order guy. He trusted the system, was sure it had gotten gay sentencing right. So Uphoff decided to pawn the case off on his first assistant, Randy Yedinok. He assumed his assistant would read Maine's letter, take a few hours to figure things out, show Gay and his lawyer how the sentencing was done by the book, and that would be that. Then sometime later, our first assistant comes back and says, uh, boss, might be, a, might be an issue with this. <laughs> what do you mean? And he said, I, I think... I think they might be right. And I then said, well, um, I think they're wrong, and now I think you're wrong. And so I want you to go back and basically do it again. And he came back again, and he said, boss, I, I, I checked again, and I, I think even more than I did before that they're right. And I said, well, I think now even more than I did before that you don't know what you're looking at and you don't know what you're doing. I thought, this is sort of starting to waste my time and waste my first assistant's time. And he finally comes back the third time and he says, boss, I've laid it all out and I'm going to give you this, this packet of information here. And I think that he's been incorrectly sentenced. And at that point I was a little exasperated and I said, you know what? I'll do this. Uh, maybe this is above your pay grade. Maybe you're just not getting it. I'll take care of this because I was feeling pretty confident at that point in time. But then when he did start looking, reading the letter of the law, getting into the technical parts, it appeared the court did make gay sentence much longer than it should have been. And at that point, I started to have a bit of a sinking feeling that this was all wrong. Then I had to start figuring out where do we go from here? How do we address this? And um, what do we do? The drama that followed, to borrow one of Gay's quotes, had enough twists and turns to send a pretzel maker into ecstasy. That's after the break. Before Seth Uphoff marched forward and declared that Anthony Gay's sentencing was wrong, he wanted to do one last thing. See if Tom Brown, the former prosecutor who had charged Gay so many times, had any information Uphoff was missing. So he set up a lunch date. And were you nervous during this meeting? Were you feeling awkward? How are you feeling? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, awkward maybe fits it a little bit uh, tentative because... He had been supportive of me taking office, and you never want to come to somebody that you respect and and show up and say, you made a mistake. So he has this history. You know Tom Brown has this history with Anthony Gay. Right. As I was told, it was a pretty embarrassing loss, and that may have fueled the the way the cases were charged against Anthony going forward. And so that stuff was in the back of my mind as I was speaking with him. Alpoff and Brown met outside for lunch at a little restaurant close to the courthouse. And because Uphoff was worried it might be uncomfortable, he says he waited until they were both about done with their meals to bring up Anthony Gay. And I said, I'm wanting to talk to you, number one, because I'm hoping maybe some light could be shed on this that would help me figure out that 
how I can combat this, how I can show that, that this was done correctly. Because uh, I wasn't trying to pr- protect Tom. I wanted to protect the system. I wanted to show that the system had worked correctly. He said Brown's initial reaction was, Anthony Gay, that guy's the worst. He's somebody who deserves to be locked up for the rest of his life. That's why we did what we did. And, you know, did anybody ever tell you the story about this and tell you the story about that? What stories was he telling you? Do you remember? Oh, some of the things Anthony Gay had done to himself. Um, You know, Anthony. Like about mutilation. Yeah, you know, Anthony Gay cut out his own testicle and tied it to the door. You know, there's always these gory stories that would come out. It was clear to Uphoff that Tom Brown thought Gay should be locked up. And he said, well, they're, they're wrong and we did it right. You know, so that was sort of the end of the conversation. By this point. Popoff is starting to get signals that adjusting Gay's sentence might be politically risky. To keep his job every four years, Upoff has to be elected. If you're a politician in a place like Pontiac, you don't want to piss off prison staff or their friends and family. Even Upoff's own first assistant, Randy Yedinok, the guy who came back and said, hey, boss, I think they've got a point. That guy. Upoff said he starts trying to talk him out of moving forward with recalculating Gay's sentence. And he said at that time, why don't you just object? They're going to file this motion. Just object. And then the judge is going to not grant it. The judge is going to, he knows Anthony Gay. He's going to say, no, Anthony Gay, no way the prosecutors are wrong. And then it's going to go to the appellate court and then let the appellate prosecutors deal with it. They're not elected. Um, They're appointed. So basically he's saying you don't have to be the hero here or the villain. You just like... Let it go. Pass the buck. Pass it to somebody else. Let somebody else do it. And then you don't have to take the heat for it. Did you consider that at all? No. For even a second? No. I get the impression that Uphoff is a stubborn guy. He'll consider arguments and think through them. But he doesn't go in much for niceties. A classic, I'm not here to make friends kind of guy. So all this political talk about who would think what, it didn't really change much for he reviewed the law, decided what it said, and that was it. So he reached out to Scott Maine, Gay's lawyer, and said, looks like you're right. How did you feel when you got that email? Unbelievably happy. <laughs> I had been sort of a longtime attorney that did not ever sort of expect that the end of a, a conversation would be with like, yeah, we agree. Gay was even more shocked. Because he basically didn't trust anyone in Pontiac. Remember, he wouldn't even take a public defender because he thought they'd be on the prison side. And now here was the state's attorney basically saying he should get out earlier. I was definitely surprised because I know there's a culture there, right? You know, there's a saying that says every man who is truly a man must learn to stand alone in the midst of all others, if need be against all others. And he reminds me of that. So I have to tilt my hat to him for that, for sure. Gay's guilty verdicts still stood. But the lawyers went back and forth, recalculating how long he had to serve behind bars. If approved, it meant instead of spending his life in prison, Gay would go home soon. They agreed to file a motion together. But Upoff had one caveat. I don't want a big press conference out in front of Pontiac Prison. Um, oh, look, you know, we prevailed and all this. I don't want a big media fanfare. For Maine and Gay, this was a major moral victory about prison, mental illness, and solitary, about how punishment can spin out of control, go beyond logic. 
But for Uphoff, it was a case of just following the law and trusting the system. And he hoped the whole thing would go by without too much attention. Now they just had to get a judge to agree. There was a hearing. Yeah, what was going through your mind in the courtroom that day? I mean, I was very excited, right? Um, Because I never gave up hope, right? And that was the payoff right there. After all that time and work, once they were in the courtroom, the whole thing went pretty quick. A judge asked a few questions and then talked directly to Uphoff. I don't remember his words verbatim, but he asked him, is this short is something that he wanted to do? And he told him this could end up costing his career or it could end up winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Gay's memory isn't exact, but it's not far off. We got the transcripts. The judge told Uphoff, basically, if Gay went on to commit a serious crime, it would likely be a quote-unquote career buster for any state jobs. Quote, because you can win a Nobel Prize after that. All people in this county are going to remember is what happened in the courtroom today and on whose recommendation. He had been a judge for a long time. He had seen people come and go, probably. He was probably a little more politically astute than I was at that time. According to the transcript, Upoff told the judge he understood, but it's his obligation to apply the law equally and fairly. Whatever the risks were for Upoff, the stakes were, of course, much higher for Gay. His lawyer, Scott Main. And so I think it was just an incredibly emotionally charged moment. You thought you're never going to be able to come home to there is now a real chance that I may come home very soon. And, and that was something that will never leave uh, me. Then, just like that, the judge granted their request. There were still details to work out, but Gay would be going home within a few years. What was it like driving back to the prison then? Like being in that van, going back to the facility after that? Man, a dream fulfilled. Um, The fight was worth it. And like when I got back and I told people, people just like, prisoners was just excited. Like when I went to the cell house, as soon as I walked in, they were screaming like cheering and happy, like, you're going home? And I mean, they like made a lot of noise, right? It was such a rarity to see someone like them win so big. Gay's friend, Christopher Knox, who had racked up charges just like Gay, he said this day was the first time in a long time that he felt hope that he might make it out of prison alive. I never had that. In many years of time, I was going through all that stuff. thought I'd ever see these streets again. I thought it was done. They was going to either kill me or I was going to kill myself. That's how I felt. He, he motivated me, inspired me in so many ways, man. No, because his story is ugly. It's ugly, but at the same time, though, it's beautiful. Just like mine's. It's so ugly, but it's beautiful. Even though there was no press conference, newspapers still picked up the story. I was frustrated because the headlines were, you know, a prosecutor agrees to reduce sentence or uh, inmate sentence reduced. It wasn't inmate sentence corrected. It wasn't prosecutor ensures correct sentence applied. It was impossible at that point for Alpoff to believe that this decision about gay would go unnoticed. But he was still two years away from election, and he hoped maybe by then it would be ancient history. But then, when the election rolled around, it was a twist. Someone intimately familiar with the gay case ran against him. 
I appreciate y'all being here. My name is Randy Ednock, and I do want to be your next Livingston County State's Attorney. Uh, this county has a lot of issues. Yep, Randy Yedinok, Seth Upoff's now former first assistant, the guy who initially looked into Gay's case, the guy who Upoff said warned him he wasn't being politically smart when he marched forward with recalculating Gay's sentence. Were you surprised that he decided to run against you? I was under the particular circumstances. Because um, you were, were you close? Yes, we were friends. We, we had lunch together almost every day. I had been invited over to his house for dinner with his wife and his kids. And I thought of him as really the truly the, the, the highest regard of first assistant, which is, you know, my, my right-hand man. Apoff was hurt. His sidekick was now his competitor. But what really got to him was when people on Yedinok's side of the race began bringing up Anthony Gay and saying Apoff had let off a dangerous criminal. One letter to the editor in the local paper explicitly mentioned Anthony Gay. It warned people to note the date Gay would be released, because anyone who came in contact with him was at risk of assault. Quote, Alpoff's job is to protect us. He has failed and put us all in danger. This is why I and everyone should vote for Randy Yedinok. Yedinok posted the letter to his Facebook page. The local AFSCME union, which represents a lot of guards, endorsed Yedinok, too. I didn't see them mention Gay by name, but they said they were confident Yedinok would, quote, ensure violent criminals who assault staff will not be granted early release. Randy Yedinok never agreed to an interview, but we did go back and forth on email. Yedinok said he thought the issue of Anthony Gay didn't play a huge role in the election. And to be fair... Reading newspaper articles and social media from the time, it does seem like there were lots of other issues. Local police didn't think Apoff was friendly enough with law enforcement. People characterized him as stubborn, not willing to cooperate with others in the criminal justice system. Which, I can believe, that adds up for someone willing to do what he did on the Anthony Gay case. In the end, Apoff was pummeled. He lost 60 to 40. Do you think that the Anthony Gay thing had enough influence on the race that it made a difference? Uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. It was a big voting block uh, with that union. And that it wasn't just the union also because that anti-law enforcement sentiment or he's not going to stand up for officers also trickled over into um, regular law enforcement. And so... So you're not sure if the race would have been different had Anthony Gay not have happened? No, I don't one know. One way or the other. It, it at least, in my opinion, it at least would have been a lot closer. I may not have won that election anyway. I don't know. We'll never know. So after all this happens in the state's attorney's race, did your way you felt walking around town change? I mean, this is your hometown. Did it change the feeling <laughs> at all? Nobody likes to lose uh, and, and to lose publicly. I mean, it's... Yeah, politics is rough. Uh, it's a rough business. Yeah. And But, you know... Especially as a prosecutor, you're elected to make the tough decisions, to make the tough calls. And if that means that someday you're, you're not in that spot, then so be it. And, you know, politics, there's no justice in politics. Alpoff said if he had to do it again, he'd still work to recalculate Gay's sentence. But he'd be more diplomatic about the whole thing. Reach out to the union, maybe work on his talking points so the press coverage was better. He thinks that people would have understood that he was just following the rules they see how he was truly a law and order guy, not some enemy of law enforcement. But honestly, I'm not sure if that's true. 
I don't think Uphoff's story is about how he failed to explain things well enough. I think it's a story about how law and order isn't really what the prison system is run on, at least not law and order as Uphoff describes it, a strict adherence to rules carefully parsed out and applied consistently to everybody. Like, you remember Susan Prentice from the last episode with the urine or water and the email about the plans of biting. That case went to Randy Yedinok to make a decision about whether or not to charge her. But he said he had a conflict of interest. So the case was sent along to a special prosecutor, someone who presumably could be more objective. Tom Brown, maximum Tom. And Brown declined to charge Prentice, saying there was insufficient evidence for a successful prosecution. When I hear that, and then I hear about Anthony Gay and his prosecutions... I think, who is the law for? Who is being kept in order? There are two groups of people, prisoners and guards, who can both do wrong things. But one has the ability to elect the person who decides when to bring charges. The other has very little recourse. That's how a man goes from a sentence of seven years to a sentence of over a hundred years. That's what it comes down to for me. Power. Politics. Gay was released in 2018. He stacked overflowing boxes of his old legal files in his dad's garage. I felt like um, the fight for justice had paid off, but I felt like the mission wasn't complete because it's bigger than me. Because there were other guys on that wing who were still in the same situation you had been. Right. What do you think it meant to them to see, for them to see you win? I know for sure it offered them hope. You know, I got a letter from one, um, one of the guys that I had wrote and told him that I'm going to start working on something to try to help him. And I know he was surprised to hear from me. And I got his letter right now, and he was like, yeah, because people say that all the time, right? And they forget about you. But I'll never forget about him because I, I know up close and personal what they're going through. People in prison with mental illness are still being prosecuted. The Department of Corrections did not answer a detailed list of questions we sent, but told us they are obligated to report crimes to the state's attorney, still Randy Yedinok. I also asked Yedinok over email about the prosecutions, and he said, quote, contrary to popular belief, correctional officers do not sign up for this type of behavior when they choose to wear the uniform. It is not part of their job to be physically assaulted, have urine or feces thrown on them, or be spat upon. Gay says, of course, staff are horrified when prisoners throw stuff at them. But he believes that if people are really concerned about staff assaults, instead of prosecutions, they should fix the problems that cause people to act out, like poor mental health treatment and segregation. They're not doing these things because they're evil. They're not doing these things because they hate correctional officers. They're doing these things because they're miserable.
Illinois has reduced its use of segregation, solitary, in recent years. But it's still in use. The Department of Corrections said in a written statement that they do consider a person's mental health when placing them in segregation. When I talked to Gay, he was on Zoom at his parents' house where he lived. There was a poster behind him that said, Dismantle Solitary Confinement. It's part of a campaign he's been working on. He's testified in front of state legislators. And in fact, there's a bill that, if passed, would further limit solitary in Illinois. It's named after Gay, but it's stalled in the legislature. 